And while they're going, you can turn to Acts chapter 2, where we're going to put in today. If you've ever wondered uh, on what basis it is that God chooses His elect, it's this. People that will come out on a Sunday like today, you're in. I could follow that up and say that's why they call them the frozen chosen. (laughs) Acts chapter 2. We'll begin verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together. And were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and I'm thinking these are right, Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. Our passage today has to do with the events of one day. Just one. But what a day. I think if you could see this day on heaven's calendar, you'd find a big red circle around it and there would be no other events scheduled for this day. Because it was a day that forever exploded redemptive history and the hope of all men everywhere carrying through to today. It was a red-letter day because it was the birth of the church. It was on this day that the first gospel sermon was ever preached, preaching repentance and faith in Jesus to any and all. It was a time that was inaugurated in redemptive history when sinners can be saved through faith in Christ. It is an interval of time. This this day was kicking off an interval of time um, that... uh, that's really precious and gracious, that is God-given eternal uh, interval in history that comes before the coming day of wrath and judgment when no man can be saved. 
So not only was it the birth of the church, but it was also moving day. So what do you mean by moving day? Well, before Jesus, God's presence was symbolized, just symbolized, as He dwelt symbolically in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus came, Emmanuel, which means God with us, the incarnation, when God became flesh, one man described it this way. When Jesus came, God put on skin and moved into our neighborhood. But Jesus had ascended to heaven at this point. But now, God the Holy Spirit was coming, and, and, and another man put it this way, that God moved on this day from the house next door into our house. God in us. Jesus' promise in John 14 was this. Speaking of the Spirit of truth, whom the world, Jesus said, cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. Christ in us is the hope of glory. This was a big day. This was moving day. When God moved... I think you've heard it said, you know, when Jesus died, sometimes that, that the, well, the Bible teaches that the temple veil separating men from the Holy of Holies, that, that veil was ripped from top to bottom. And it's been said that men then could access God. But I want us to look at it like this. When the temple veil was torn, it was not just so men could go in, but more that God was coming out. To move in to us. To move into the hearts of those who love Him. Well, Pentecost, that's this day we're talking about. It was a red-letter day in Jerusalem. It was one of three annual feasts commanded by God. Did you know, those of you that think that God is stuffy and stodgy and doesn't want us to have a good time, that God commanded parties? He did. That's what, that's what Pentecost was. It was a party. Now, I don't mean it was a drunken brawl, but it was a party. And he commanded it, and they celebrated it every year. And, and, and what Pentecost did was it anticipated the promise of God in the earth to bring forth fruit and harvest and bounty. Actually, it was kind of Thanksgiving with a forward view. Because they brought in the first fruits of the crop, which is also, this, this festival is called First Fruits. They brought it in and celebrated knowing that God was going to be faithful and produce more for them. Pentecost is called Pentecost uh, because it is 50 days after Passover. It was celebrated 50 days after Passover. And that's all that Pentecost means is just 50th. just means 50th. Now, so Pentecost was 50 days after Passover, but like the Passover, 50 days before, had found its fulfillment, its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This Pentecost, this celebration of first fruits, found its fulfillment in the birth of the church. Fulfillment. That's why literally... In the, in the original language, the passage reads like this. When the day of Pentecost had been fulfilled. 
And it was fulfilled with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The house, we read that the apostles were gathered in was filled. The apostles were filled. God's promise to live in his people was fulfilled. So as we look at this passage today, I want you to keep a word in mind. And that word is pre-evangelism. Getting people ready to hear the good news. Because what follows this passage, and we'll be preaching on in weeks coming, is Peter's sermon. And did you know at that sermon, the Bible says that on this day, this same day, 3,000 people were saved. So let's look at the coming of the Holy Spirit. I'd like, like us to look at it, first of all, as a strategic arrangement. There's a strategy here of the Holy Spirit. He had all of the apostles come together according to Jesus' instruction and wait. They were all in one room so the Spirit could come at one time and distribute the, the, the tongues of fire on them, the Holy Spirit. So not only was, was the Holy Spirit strategizing and gathering the apostles in one room, He had also gathered untold thousands of devout Jews in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. From all around the, the Med, if you... If you if you look at these places, there's 15 of them listed, 15 nations. And they all, if you could put a map up of the Mediterranean, you could just see these nations that these Jews were from just circled the whole thing. People from Asia, the north and the south and the east of Asia, people from Africa, Jews from Europe, from Rome, from Saudi Arabia. It was strategic gathering. And you know, it's interesting that as we go on out in, in, in Acts and, and, the, and the rest of the New Testament, we learn that there was at least eight, at least eight churches, New Testament churches, that started very quickly after Pentecost. And it was because of the stra strategy of the Holy Spirit in, in gathering these people together for this time. It was effective. And their being there wasn't any accident or just because it happened to be Pentecost. It was a strategy of the Holy Spirit. And you know, the Holy Spirit continues to strategize to this day. It wasn't just in the last uh, few years that we had a couple that normally sits here that probably weren't able to get here from Ben, John and Donna McAdams. And they had ministered teaching house church leaders primarily in China for 29 years. 29. And all of a sudden, well, I guess it wasn't all of a sudden, but, but the pollution over there is so bad that it affected Donna's respiration. And for health reasons, they had to come home. And I don't think that there was any doubt about it that they were disappointed because they had had to leave their ministry. But the Holy Spirit was strategizing. The Holy Spirit made it such that there's a company in Hillsboro that trains all of the pilots for all of the Far East. I mean, Singapore Airlines, China Eastern Airlines, Malaysian Airlines, all of them, China, I mean, all throughout China. They train about 150 pilots at a time. These are all Chinese-speaking guys that are flown over here just to get their airline transport rating so they can fly jets all over the that part of, well, really all over the world. Well, that's in Hillsboro, and John and Donna were here. 
But guess what? The Holy Spirit was strategizing. And he moved that flight operation from Hillsborough that had been there for years to Redmond. And the people that are in charge of training these Chinese pilots are interested in them learning English. And so they said, hey, is there anybody around here that can just kind of read English and talk to these guys? And so John and Donna kind of went, we can. Because if they need to, I mean, you know, they get in a tough spot, they can throw down some Mandarin or Cantonese. I mean, just, just like that. And they said, so what's the curriculum? And they said, well, you can read to them whatever you want to. You see the strategy. And they are. They're, they're, they're up there. Uh, them and, and others are up there just reading them sometimes. Bible stories. Uh, you know, things that we've heard. You know, things that, the things that are in the Bible. They're giving them Jesus. They're giving them God's Word. And who'd have thunk it, right? I mean, coming back from China, disappointed. But God had a strategy. The strategy of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, you know, I don't sense any times like that where the Holy Spirit's strategizing in my life. I don't see these big, colossal, uh, you know, uh, bright light elements going on in my life. But the Holy Spirit is strategizing because He's in you. And I'll tell you a, a short story about what happened to me. And this has been more years ago than I care to remember. A lady that was lived in our neighborhood that was on my wife's Avon route. Yes, Nancy was an Avon lady. Ding dong. Uh, she had gotten wound up and really confused in a in a pseudo Christian cult. And uh, I don't know for some reason that sparked my interest in this lady. And over what it was months, wasn't it, Nancy? I spent a night or two a week at this gal's kitchen table. And we were going through, you know, the, the, the tenets of the faith. You know, salvation by grace, that Jesus is God and some things like that. And this, this cult had gotten her mind so wrapped up around the axle that she couldn't really think straight. And so it would seem like we would teach one night. She'd say, yeah, I got it. And the next night she was on the phone. The next morning she was on the phone, and Nancy go, "Well, I don't think we're, I don't know what Terry was talking about last night." So back we do it again. Now, while this was going on, her husband, who was an alcoholic, would come home from work. I mean, he was there when I got home, and it, there was, the kitchen was right there, and the living room was just right off of there. And he was laying on the couch there watching TV. I think he was watching Gunsmoke most of the time. And he'd uh, crack open a case of beer. And he'd just go through it. Never said a word. Tall guy. Vietnam vet. Stringy hair hanging down his face. Real low self-esteem. And when he walked around, he'd be hunched over like this. And he just never said much at all. So night after night after night, over a period of months, we were going through these things, sitting here with his wife at the kitchen table, him on the couch watching TV, drinking. And I was going through that part in Romans... I mean, there's a lot of parts in Romans and that, that it talks about justification by faith. That, that, and I think what it was, was was Romans 3 where it says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And I'd gone over that, I don't know how many times with her. And I turned around and, and I was shocked. He was standing, he was looking right over my shoulder. And I remember I can't, couldn't see his eyes because his hair was dangling on like that. 
had his hands in his pockets and he said, you mean if I, if I just trust in what Jesus has did, I can go to heaven? <laughs> yeah. So here I am banging my head against the wall, thinking that nothing's happening, nothing's going on. And there was a strategy of the Holy Spirit was speaking to that guy in, in a different room on a couch. Actually, his wife got saved later, too. That was great. Moments are made strategic by the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is in you. Now, if you're like me, we often take ourselves out of the game because we're, we're, we're always on the search for the right time or the right circumstances to witness, and they never seem to come. But the Holy Spirit makes every day in every moment, in you, strategic. So if the Holy Spirit had a strategy, a a strategic arrangement, there was a sensational arrival, the coming of the Holy Spirit. It says that suddenly there came. Now, the Holy Spirit came not gradually because He was ginned up or prayed up or called down or anything like that. This was just suddenly. It doesn't even say that what the apostles were praying about, but they were praying. But it came not according to their time and their will and their schedule, but according to God's timing and God's plan. There was a sound from heaven, it says, that was like a wind. Not a little bit of wind, but a violent wind. It's a sound probably not of earthly origin because it says it came from heaven. Now we know that Jesus, and in other places in the Bible, spoke of the Holy Spirit being like wind. He said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, he said, you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. But with the coming of the Holy Spirit to the church, on the day of the birth of the church, we know exactly where this sound came from. It came from heaven. It was full on. It was violent. God was coming and He wasn't coming a little bit. And fire, it says, there appeared fire that distributed itself on, itself on each one of them. A tongue of fire. And for the Jews, the symbol a fire of God's divine presence was all throughout the Bible. I mean, in Exodus, Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, you guys remember Moses and the burning bush and Deuteronomy where God spoke from Sinai to the people. It was out of fire. And Jesus had said, you'll be baptized with fire. John the Baptist has said, you'll be baptized with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's no mistaking it was God. The wind filled them, and the fire rested on each one of them. This was a personal coming and filling. But it was also a corporate coming and filling, because they were all in one place. So it happened to all of them, and it happened to each of them. The coming of the Holy Spirit. And the result was a supernatural ability. They were able to speak with other tongues, other languages, and that's really the word there is, is language. It wasn't what, what, the, what, what the apostles were speaking wasn't some kind of ecstatic gibberish. It wasn't for the, expense, uh, for the experience of the apostles, but for God's purpose. And it's interesting because as we look at this, we see that the apostles were giving how to communicate 
in another language. And they were given what to communicate. It says they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they knew how to say it, and they knew what to say. You know, the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples of men, and and what Jesus had told the, the apostles that you will be my witnesses, if I'm honest, that kind of strikes fear in me. And I think, at least for me, my greatest fear is what to say and how to say it. Even though Jesus specifically promised the Spirit would give them what to say. Jesus said in Matthew 10, but when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what to say. How or what? Do you get it? For it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Consider for a minute just the obstacles, the strategery that the apostles were looking at. Here are the apostles. And, 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 look at the, and think about the obstacles to the, their witness and see if they aren't like yours and like mine. They were afraid. John chapter 20 says that they were huddled in a room for fear of the Jews. They were afraid. I can check that box. They had failed. They had abandoned. They'd even denied Jesus. I can check that box. They had no way of getting disinterested or even hostile Jews to listen to their message. Check that box. Their message was sure to be rejected, they thought. I mean, after all, just 50 days before, they'd put the Lord Jesus to death. So they were sure that their message would be rejected. Check that box. Their skills for communicating were inadequate. Check that box. Yet they were given an ability to speak in the native languages of at least 13 people groups. Have you ever been in a foreign place where everybody's speaking foreign and you hear English? (laughs) You know, you go, ah, you can hear it a mile away, right? Okay, and so that's kind of the thing that that was happening here is is the crowds rushed to hear what they understood. And, and, And when the crowd rushed together, they found that the ones that were speaking were just Country bumpkin hicks from Galilee. Now the message and the power of the Holy Spirit is what was getting the job done. And often, it's our own lack, lack of charisma and personal impressiveness that's most useful to the Holy Spirit. You know, Christians assume that we have to shape up, we have to buff up, we have to be kind of the spiritual equivalent of a world-class bodybuilder to be used of God, but that's not so. God can use our little girly arms. (laughs) The Holy Spirit works through our infirmities and weaknesses and shines through our inabilities. They were Galileans. But his strength was being made perfect in their weakness. What you consider your Galilean moment, what you consider to be your biggest weakness, your biggest liability in witnessing, may be the very thing that the Holy Spirit finds most useful in you.
not because of your strength or your power or what you bring to the table, but because of him. Okay, so that's the apostle. So now we move to the crowd. The crowd we find first in bewilderment in verse 6. There's four words that are used to describe the crowd's reaction. And they kind of sound like they can just be same descri- uh, uh, similar descriptions of the same thing. And they are similar, but they are different. There's a, there's a progression that we see. The first word is they came together and they were bewildered. And, and if you chase that word down, it means really incapable of processing what they were seeing. They didn't have any boxes for what were these people speaking in these languages, these Galileans speaking in a language that, that, that there's no way that they could know. How is this happening? But, but it was so, uh, so, so strange. They were dumbfounded. They were stupefied. It's basically, there's no, they just stand there. That's first reaction. Second one. It says they were amazed. They were astounded to the point of nearly, nearly, Losing their mental faculties. But there's a little bit going on there. Thirdly, they were astonished. They marveled. This is a, a recognition. I mean, the head's starting to work now. This is a recognition that this is completely outside the bounds of normalcy. That it is. It's kind of beginning to recognize it for what it is. And then fourthly, it says they had great perplexity. And that's really a realization that it defies explanation. So we see the progression of of going from being stupefied and bewildered to being amazed to recognizing that this is outside and then realizing that it defies explanation. So the, the crowd's reaction and their bewilderment, which ends up in great perplexity, and then realizing, thinking that this defies explanation, then they want an explanation. And they say this. They say, how can they do this? Some of your translations say, why? Aren't all these Galileans? What they're saying is, how can Galileans do this? There's hayseeds. And they ask another how question, but how can we hear each in our own language and dialect? How's that happening? But the crowd doesn't stop with the how questions. They go from wanting an explanation to seeking meaning. They say, they asked, what does this mean? What does what we're seeing mean? You know, it's remarkable... I think that in, in none of Jesus' miracles did the crowd ever ask, what does this mean? When Jesus raised the dead, when he provided food for the 5,000, when he healed the lame, caused the blind to see, cast out demons, they marveled at it. They were attracted to it. They said things like, no one has ever done things like this before. They even admitted that only God can do these things, but no one ever asked, what does this mean? And here we see the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit as He draws in on this crowd. Here the Holy Spirit is prompting the crowd from being stupefied from what they're seeing to asking the right questions. Asking the right questions. You know, the the crowds that saw Jesus 
they, they, they didn't ask what his miracles meant, but, but they meant that he was Messiah. It meant that, that he was the one they'd been waiting for. It meant that the, the miracles meant that he should be listened to and believed on, that he was their salvation, but no one ever asked that. The Holy Spirit's getting them prepared for Peter's preaching, which is coming right up. Jesus had said about his miracles, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Which is code words in John for Jesus going to the Father and the Spirit's coming. So the greater works are not just the miracles, but drawing a people to ask, what do they mean? Getting them ready for that pre-evangelist. Now, David gave us a real helpful reminder a couple of weeks ago. He said, he said this, it is our responsibility to bring Jesus to the people, Right? It's not our responsibility to bring the people to Jesus. It's our responsibility to bring Jesus to the people. But here, we see the Holy Spirit was doing His miraculous work in bringing the people to Jesus. We are co-workers with the Holy Spirit. With a part in the most dramatic search and rescue operation ever. Calling condemned sinners to be eternal joyful worshipers of God. We don't have our own mission. We have a co-mission with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit of Christ. Well, while all this was going on, they were seeing signs. (laughs) This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Signs which they could not be mistaken. There was speech that couldn't be explained. There was questions that, that couldn't be answered. And it was going to be followed by a sermon that couldn't be ignored. There was 3,000 saved, and just a short time after that, there was at least another 2,000. And there's the miracle. The spiritually dead men coming to life in Christ, all because of the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, we know the apostles, who were believers, were told to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit who, our text makes clear, they received at Pentecost after their conversion. The disciples had been believers in Jesus Christ, but here we see at Pentecost, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit afterwards. So, two questions need to be asked and answered about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. First is, when do believers today experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's just the first question. After Pentecost... Believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit at the very moment they place their faith in Christ. After the initial coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, we see in our Bibles that repentance and faith are simultaneous with the reception of the Spirit. In Peter's sermon, which was to follow that same day, he said, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Boom, boom. Romans 8, chapter 9, makes it perfectly clear. It says if Paul speaking about the, the gift and the working of the Spirit in our lives, putting 
in, in that case, putting the deeds of the flesh to death. But he's talking about the spirit, the possession of the spirit in the believer. And he says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So there's no such thing as a Christian without the indwelling spirit. After conversion, there's nothing further is necessary for the presence of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. No further baptism in the Spirit. Only life that's in step with the Spirit, which goes on being filled. So, question number two. Why then did the apostles experience a separate baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost? And the answer is, is because until Jesus had been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and glorified, the Spirit was not yet given. Way back, perhaps as much as two years before, in John chapter 7, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit in believers. He said that out of those who believe in me, rivers of living water will flow out. And to clarify, John says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was glorified in his completed work when he ascended to heaven. And that's why some maybe ten days before this, Jesus promised to the apostles of the soon coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, baptism of the Holy Spirit is confused with the filling of the Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event, and it signifies eternal union with Christ. We come into union, oneness with Christ, through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and He secures our eternal union with Christ. It's one time. And we're not baptizing again and again. It's a, it's a covenantal union of, of two becoming one, like a marriage where the believer in Christ are joined. And we're not baptized in the Holy Spirit over and over again for the same reason that I'm not, I don't remarry my wife periodically. We've been brought into union, into covenantal union, made one, according to the Bible, one flesh through marriage. And that's the way the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Now, on the other hand, the filling of the Holy Spirit has to do with control. Has to do with His control and with His empowerment. And we read all throughout the, 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 the New Testament about, um, about the command that we're given to be continually filled over and over and over again, repeatedly filled with the Spirit. There's other distinctions between today's believer and the apostles at Pentecost. Before Pentecost, the apostles were told to wait for the Holy Spirit. And after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, believers are not urged to wait, but to walk in the Spirit that they have, that's been given them continuously. Believers are not told to wait, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit continuously. Now, we see a lot of, as a matter of fact, this book has been called, and I think rightly so, not so much Acts of the Apostles, but Acts of the Holy Spirit. But there's some things I want us as we go, go through here to just kind of take 
a little mental note of. First of all, the acts of the Holy Spirit are not to draw attention to the Holy Spirit, but to Jesus. But to Jesus. The Holy Spirit never exalts himself or his miracles, but Jesus. The miracle, the true miracle here is not the signs, but it's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the believer. The purpose of the Holy Spirit coming in this section is to make the saving gospel of Jesus Christ believed on in the world. The signs, the tongues, the Galileans that were speaking way out of their league, those merely confirmed the promise was from God. It confirmed the gospel message that Peter was going to preach. And it confirmed that the apostles had the authority to preach it. Signs can become a snare. I don't think you have to look too far to see all kinds of crazy stuff going on as Christians seek miraculous signs. There's a, for extra credit, sometime you can read in Acts chapter 8 where this guy in Samaria that was a really kind of a marquee music, a magician by the name of Simon, he actually became a believer in Jesus Christ and he saw the, the, uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. He says, hey, I want some of that because I know what you guys are doing is way better than what I'm doing. And so he got all wrapped up around the axle about the signs. And Peter said, hey, you know, this is way upside down. You need to pray that your lust for these signs and things, that you're forgiven that. Because he actually wanted to buy them. So all, all kinds of signs can be a confusing and, and, and lead to some kind of crazy stuff. Next, the promise of the Holy Spirit to every believer is secured by the promise of Jesus, not by the signs. You get that? The promise of the Holy Spirit to the believer is secured because Jesus said it. You know, he also said that heaven and earth are going to pass away, but not my words. That's the security that the believer has of the Holy Spirit. Not the signs that for this time, in this place, and in this transition, accompanied the miracles. Honestly, as I said before, the Great Commission and Jesus' command that we will be His witnesses make me kind of uneasy. It's probably because I'm troubled by my inadequacies and fear of rejection, and maybe that's kind of where you're living too. And you hear sermons, right, that say you just have to buckle down and try harder about witnessing. Now, I don't know about you, but hearing I should try harder hasn't done anything for me except make me feel guilty for not trying harder. But beloved, trying harder is not the answer. The Holy Spirit didn't include this section of all that He's doing so we would try harder. But believe. Believe in what He's doing. Believing that He's in us. It's the Holy Spirit that's doing all of the heavy lifting here. Strategically organizing this event. Empowering the apostles and, and preparing the crowd to receive the gospel. 
and Peter's sermon to follow where Jesus was preached and 3,000 people were saved. The author of Acts, which is the Holy Spirit, isn't concerned that we try harder, but that we are encouraged to believe that the Holy Spirit is in us and witnessing through us. I don't think I'm the only Christian that feels because of where our inadequacies, that we can't get the job done, that we can't win. But this passage tells us that because of the indwelling Holy Spirit and His power and Jesus' promise that we can't lose. Robert Schuller, that name ring a bell with anybody? The Crystal Cathedral guy. Just a little disclaimer, you probably won't hear me quoting him very often. Uh, he char- started his church kind of like, uh, well, let's see, what do the people want? Oh, let's try a drive-in movie. So that's where they launched the first one. They ended up with this giant thing called the Crystal Cathedral. I'm not really a great fan of his theology, but he did say something that made me think, and I want to leave you with it. And it was in a, in a section that he called possibility thinking. Okay? And he used to ask this question. He said, what great endeavor would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you do? What great thing would you do if you knew that you could not fail? Well, we don't get to pick that great thing. That great thing has been given to us. It's to go into the world and make the name of Jesus great by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know that endeavor will not fail. It will not fail. It is a guaranteed success because of the Holy Spirit in us. In us. We need not to try harder but believe that the Holy Spirit is in us just like Jesus promised. Jesus in us, performing the greatest life-saving rescue the world has ever known. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have been joined to Christ by the baptism of your Spirit. Father, we are forever one Thank you for taking up residence in us, Lord. Thank you for moving out so that you could move in to us. Help us to believe that, Lord, that you live in us so that we will expect and yield to your work of making Christ known in our neighborhood. Lord Jesus, most of us believe this, sort of. But help our unbelief. Help our unbelief that Jesus might be made great. In his name we pray. Amen.